I'm Jennifer Nielsen, and this is Let It Glow, Episode 6, Embracing Plan B with Julie Hout. Ready, set, glow! Welcome to the Let It Glow podcast, a happy place where you'll learn how to let your soul shine and discover new ways to design your best life. I'm your host, Jennifer Nielsen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this podcast episode. You are in for a real treat today. I brought in Julie Hout, one of my favorite people ever. In fact, we've known each other since we were in diapers, and we're still dear friends, and we still talk all the time, and we still love each other. But she inspires me in so many ways. She's been through some hard things and continues to laugh through it all. And you'll see what I mean. Like her laugh is the best. So first, let's just kind of talk to Julie about kind of our upbringing. We grew up in Mesa. Yes. Hi, guys. (laughs) (laughs) So far, this is so fun. (laughs) Grew up in Mesa and pretty affluent area. Everybody was great at everything, and I was too. (laughs) Well, we were kind of the outcast a little bit, let's be honest. We were tall and gangly and not that good at kickball. We were always the last people picked. I solved that problem. (laughs) I got my own kickball, and we created our own team of little fellow outcasts. Yeah, it was good. That team didn't last very long. We laugh now. There were tears as, as children. We were always the boys when we were doing little plays. And it was bad. It was a, the princesses. <laughs> Look at us now. I'm a princess now. So we survived growing up in Mesa together. Yep. And then I went on and got married at the ripe age of Wait, 18. Wait, you moved away. You left Mesa. Oh, I left her. To, to my her. own devices. It was so depressing. My my tall, gangly, <laughs> awkward friend left me and I was on my own. Okay, now you can continue. I just want to say So make I left sure to Gilbert. I was about 10 when I moved and we still kept in touch. We were always really good friends, but um, of course things change when you're in high school and you're busy. And then we kind of reconnected even more so when we went to college. Mm-hmm. I was newly married And she had actually, at that point, decided she wanted to go on a mission for our church. And I remember, it was really funny, because I never planned on getting married young. I had a long list of the adventures that I wanted to do, the things I wanted to accomplish. And here Julie was like, oh, I guess I'll go on a mission. I'm Why not? And she ended up getting called to where? To London, England. I did not know this was Jen's. Favorite place on the earth. I would have rubbed it in a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) No, literally. I remember when I first traveled out of the country, I went to England. My dad served his mission there. And I remember as a young 15-year-old girl just complaining and dragging my feet that I had to leave my friends for the summer. And of course, after I was there for a few weeks, I cried and I dragged my feet that I had to come back home. I loved it so much. I felt like I just belonged there. So I remember sitting in my bed throwing a little temper tantrum because technically Julie was living my plan A, which was to go on a mission and do some of these things. And here I was married. I had responsibilities. And so it was just a funny little experience where she had no idea. And of course, I was happy for her eventually. And she was living my plan A because I just wanted to get married right out of high school to Talon. (laughs) (laughs) 
like Talon. Julie and Talon have this similar fun vibe about them. They're both some of my favorite people for that reason. So, okay, let's talk about some forms of plan B that we, you know, off the top of our head, what, like divorce? Um, okay, so I, I wasn't planning on going on a mission. I felt like I needed to, and so I went. And then when I came home, again, I just wanted to get married to Talon. <laughs> he wasn't available. Um, and then that did not happen. So I was like, I guess I'll go to college. And then I started at ASU. And uh, by the time I graduated, um, again, I was just like, I'm just going to get married. And that didn't happen again. I started teaching um, for the church. I got hired on as a seminary teacher. And I started at Mountain View and then Highland High School. And um, so none of those things was in my my plan A at all. And I recognize now why those things were so vital to to what I'm doing now. Um, but yeah, I didn't want to do any of that at all. I was like, why? This is so depressing. I just want to get married. I just want to have babies. I just want to do what all my friends are doing. And I was super jealous. I, I was like, this is so lame. And when Jen would have fall aparts, I'm like, what the crap is wrong with her? <laughs> All figured out. She had this comforter with matching pillows and a dust ruffle and then matching curtains with the dust ruffle. I was like, she's got it all figured out. Oh, and my cradle had matching bedding to yeah. all of that. It was it was so dialed in. There was just pillows everywhere that matched everything in her house. And, um, you know, she got married young and started having kids. And I was so jealous of that whole setup. And that's not what happened. And then I got married at 26, which, you know, felt like I was a grandma. Yeah. And I realize now how how young that still is so I got married at 26 and then had my first baby at 28 and then moved out to Washington DC with my first husband um and then moved to Orange County and then after 13 years of marriage we I moved home to Arizona and we got divorced and I was starting literally from scratch and I was so devastated I I literally could not have been more thrown off by what life had given me. I just, I knew when I got married, it was going to be forever. And I didn't care how hard it was. I didn't care how difficult that relationship was for me. I was going to, I was going to do it if it was the last thing I did. And um, I found myself, you know, living in this teeny tiny, and my parents had like moved from their big house because all their kids were married and gone. And you know, most of them lived in Arizona, so they had one tiny little guest room, and so I found myself just living in this tiny room at their house um, with my four kids and just crying myself to sleep every single night, trying to figure out what I was going to do and how I was going to recover from this. And I remember specifically telling God, whatever happens, I will never, ever get remarried, ever. I would never do that to myself. And, you know, at that point, I was still, like, somewhat attached to my my first, the idea of my first marriage and my my family, how that looked and how it appeared and how it was for me and the reality of that. And I was never going to let it go. And so all, all of that stuff. And I, you know, when we, when we got married, I just thought I'm being so blessed because I've been so obedient. And the Lord told me to go on a mission and go to college, teach seminary. And I just felt like I was being given these gifts that was because of obedience. And so when it was ripped away from me, I, 
I was so confused. I really was like, how, you know, if you do A, B, and C, then X, Y, and Z happens, you know? But as I've gotten older, I realize you do A, B, and C because you love God and, you know, whatever else happens. That's how we can find peace even when things don't work out. And I think that is so important. It's a very comforting idea. You know, and there's but. so many forms of like plan B comes in so many shapes and sizes, mm-hmm. right? And I think divorce is a really hard one. You have death, marriage, sickness, um, finances. Sometimes we end up moving unexpectedly. I mean, they're endless. And so I think um, what I'll touch on here for just a few minutes, and then we'll get back to the rest of your story, okay. is maybe different guidelines to how we can help ourselves when we're, we find ourselves in the situation that you were in. And I wish I'd have had these same guidelines when I was wallowing in my bed crying because you were on a mission <laughs> and I was married. But I think anytime we have a dream, like you had a, a vision of your marriage, you kind of have to mourn that loss, right? Mm-hmm, and I for think sure. you're, you're more or less mourning the idea, not the actual reality of what it was. And I think that's an important distinction that you made. So here are just kind of ones that I came up with, and I think the number one is to exercise self exercise self compassion. And I think you know, looking at what you had to go through, and like you said, you tried everything, you did your best, and yet it didn't work out. And I think that's when it's important to to know that we do the best that we can do, right? Mm-hmm. So number one is exercise self exercise self compassion. That's kind of a tongue twister. Number two. Allow yourself to go through the grieving cycle. And this just isn't with death. And I had to go through that on my own with when my dad passed away. But there's been other times in my life with when my child, I found out she had severe health issues, to kind of go through that grieving cycle of what I thought her life would be and what I had envisioned for her. So the grieving cycle isn't just, again, for when we lose a loved one. And there's different parts of that cycle. They used to call them stages, like somehow you do A, B, C, D, E, and then you're done. I think the way the grieving cycle works is it's just kind of it just kind of bounces around at different times. Sometimes we have denial, sometimes we have anger, bargaining, depression, and then finally acceptance. But they're not usually in that order. And sometimes you'll go through one and you'll go to another, then you'll go back to one. But just understand that when you're in that grieving cycle, that you can't go around it. You have to go through it. I think that's an important thing to remember. And it looks different for everyone. I think this is really important to point out because so often I've been in these hard things or dealing with a trial and I'm like, why is this so hard for me? They dealt with it and look at them, they're doing fine. Or why are they not having as hard a time as I am? Or whatever, wherever our mind goes. But just to be um, understanding that um, we all are different phases at different times. So number three is to let go of expectations. Let go of expectations for other people, maybe the expectations that we have for our lives. Um, Really, expectations are the root of all disappointment. Thank you, William Shakespeare. But often we just have to understand that it is what it is. Do a British plug. (laughs) Of course. We love, we both love our little British. I feel like having tea now. Oh, yes. That would be so much fun. We'll just do lunch after. Okay. Okay, so understanding, too, that expectations rob you of the happiness of what you have right now in your life. And then number four is focus on what's working instead of what's not working. And I I look at, Julie, where you're at. There, you know, a very hard time in your life. And and again, we're going back to exercising self-compassion. So it's not to say that you're doing anything right or wrong, but Mm -hmm. I'm sure you got to that point where you're like, I have a place to live. I have support from my family. I have four healthy children. 
and focusing as much as you can on what is working. But it's not to deny yourself the permission to mourn what isn't. But as you progress in this process, really focusing on what is working, because I can promise you, no matter how crappy your life might feel, there's always abundance and goodness to be found. That is a promise. So number five, avoid the victim trap. This is a hard one because there's times when crappy things happen to us and it doesn't seem fair and we feel justified in our victimhood, (laughs) but it doesn't serve us. We're basically giving our power over to the universe, to the person that's hurt us, to exterior circumstances. When really, if we can take that um, back into our own hands and understand that we have the power to be proactive about what is going on in our life. And number six, take time for self-care. This is a big one, especially for you, Julie, when you're in the midst of like a divorce, trying to figure out finances, trying to take care of the mm-hmm. kids on your own. That's kind of the first thing to go, right? Oh, is for taking sure. care of yourself. I mean, I'd let that go for a while, just trying to survive. You know, sometimes when you're in survival mode, you're just kind of trying to get through the day. But I remember being with my parents and pretty early on they like suggested like going to counseling and I felt like it seemed so selfish, even though it's like something that would help me and help the kids. Um, but they forced me to go and we're like, we're going to pay for it. We're taking care of this. We set up the appointment. And um, I it was weird how guilty just even going to like therapy and I was like, no, I think I got this figured out. I'll, I'll work through it. And I look back at that and just laugh because I just thought the worst part was over. <laughs> like, Isn't that how it works? It's, it's just, just like, like oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, it's going to get better from here. And it did not get better from there. And I was, I was really happy that my parents kind of made me um, focus on that because it was super helpful and it was super necessary for, for a lot of different reasons. I love it. You you touched on a couple of my latter um, guidelines, but we're going to first finish with self-care, then we're going to get to seeking support from family and Mm -hmm. getting professional help. So what some other ideas for self-care are just getting rest, meditating, journaling. Journaling is a super powerful way to get out some of the, the feelings that we're having. And I have two journals. I have my complaint banter journal where I put all my junk And I usually throw it away after I've written in it. And then I have my gratitude journal. But writing is a powerful tool to get some of those feelings, some of those emotions out. Prayer, exercise, and connecting with others are just a few of the ways that we can take time for self-care. And number seven is to seek to forgive those who hurt you. Now, again, this is not an easy thing to do. And a lot of these topics we'll touch on later in different podcasts because really forgiveness deserves its very own podcast and it will get its own. So to be continued, mm-hmm. but the, there's a couple of different angles to this. First to forgive those who have hurt you. Sometimes we have to forgive God. Like we feel like we've been betrayed by this, you know, thinking that we've done all that we could do. And then somehow things don't work out. It's just like, we're just angry sometimes at the world. Right. And even though that doesn't necessarily seem rational, it's sometimes a very natural way to feel. And another time, another way we can use forgiveness is forgiving those who are close to us for not supporting us the way we want them to. Now, this one's really interesting because I've been through that where I wasn't being supported the way I felt like I should. I felt alone and I didn't, I didn't necessarily know how to ask for the help that I needed. And so 
that's something that I've had to work through because a lot of times people don't know what to do in situations they've never dealt with before. And so sometimes they use the path of avoidance or they don't want to get, you know, be too obtrusive. And sometimes we just need to help them know how to help us. And that's where I talk about in number eight is reaching out to friends and family for support. And sometimes we need to kind of tell them what we need. And again, it goes back to not being the victim, understanding that if we need help, we need to ask. If something's not working, try to figure out a way to do something different. And then, of course, number nine you talked about, which I'm a huge advocate of, getting professional help if it's beyond what you can handle. And what I love about Julie is that she didn't just stop with herself. She made sure that her kids had someone that they could work with Mm -hmm. and talk about things with. And I feel like that is the most powerful thing you can do for your kids so that they have a voice. They can express things without feeling like they're going to upset mom or they're going to upset dad or cause further worry. Because that's often what kids do. They kind of look around and they see their parents are struggling and they just don't want to add more stress. They don't want to get in the way. But if you give them time with somebody that they can talk to that's a little bit separate, it gives them that opportunity to talk about those things, to let the darkness out, bring it to the light. And the last one is, number 10, is to turn it over to God. I I know for me, I could not have healed the way that I've healed without turning it over to a higher power. That's just the way my healing has worked for me. And Julie is one of those people that she's just, she's always praying. She's, she's always talking to God. I do. I do. I love Tell to me more talk about to, that, Julie. I Well, my kids get so sick of me. I'm like, well, have you prayed about it? And they're like, why are you always saying, have you prayed about it? It's so dumb. I'm like, no, it's not. Whatever it is, you got to pray about it. And I just feel like it's really important to get in the habit of just talking to them all day long. And if it's if it's not God, like what you were saying, like a higher power, um, you got to have that connection or you kind of lose side of who you are or you know who you belong to and you belong to like a bigger a bigger plan a bigger purpose but I I feel like my kids get so tired of me repeating that but I I want them to leave my house they might not know how to do (laughs) take out the trash or make their bed but dad gummit they're gonna know (laughs) that they have got to learn how to pray and talk to God on a regular basis and make it very natural like at all times. And sometimes it needs to be more intense on your knees. And it's more of like, you know, a heart spilling thing or just kind of a random conversation in your head as you're, you know, kind of cruising down the street. But I, I have constantly, that. constantly, you know, felt like that is the most important thing to connect to yourself to your heavenly home is to is to be talking on a consistent basis with your um, original parents. And I I've I do it all the time. I did it on the way over here. I did it this morning. I, you know, I just am constantly trying to pray and I tell everybody around me. And, and you well, know, it gives you that, a source that's beyond you because sometimes it's pain, sure. the level of the pain, it's 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 almost impossible to bear in our in our own humanity. It's just almost too much. Um, I love this little analogy we're talking about how often we pray and we don't always get the answers that we want or it doesn't work out the way that we think that it should. But I love the story of the flood where the man's praying to God to come help him. So what happens? He sends the guy in the car to pick him Uh up. And then he's like, God, you're not answering my prayers. And then the next thing you know, he's on top of the roof. It's like, okay, I'm praying, God, come help me. Well, next thing you know, a boat comes along and he's like, nope, I'm waiting for God to answer my prayers. 
And then it, a helicopter finally comes. The flood's getting so bad. They come to rescue him. And he's like, nope, I'm waiting for God to, to rescue me. Well, he ends up drowning because he didn't let anybody help him. And he gets to the pearly gates. And he's like, God, I prayed to you. Why didn't you help me? And he says, well, I sent you a car, I sent you a boat, and I sent you a helicopter. But I think that's really important to understand that we need to not only just pray, but understand how those prayers are coming back to us and how they're being answered. And it's not always the way that we think it should be, but just to keep moving forward and having being proactive in what we're doing and utilizing those people in our lives that are there to help us and taking action for ourselves. And I think that that, that story about the flood just kind of Gives you a picture of that. Mm-hmm. Julie, so what advice would you give others on how to best support someone during a difficult time like a divorce? Um, okay, so that's tricky because there are going to be people that say things that they mean well, they love you, and for some reason or another, it's just going to rub you the wrong way. And I feel like for the most part, you have to give people the benefit of the doubt for even trying. And if they say something dumb, which which they will, everybody's got some opinion or some advice or some thing that they're going to say that all... And I remember somebody giving me that book, The Proper Care and Feeding of Husbands, and I'm like, oh my gosh, my copy is so beat up. Like, you know, but I I've like, been there, done that. I've tried yeah, all of I'm this. Like, just, but I, I wasn't super vocal, especially especially my my friends in, in um, ward in Orange County. Like when I left, I think I think people were a little surprised. They knew that we had like an interesting relationship, but when I left, I really nobody knew. Not oh, one I remember person. I was sitting. I was actually heading to California. I was at the gas station and I got the phone call from you and you told me that you were in Arizona. I'm like, because I was going to California, I was hoping to see you. And here you are in Arizona. I didn't, you had just gotten like, I there. I to see you. I'm like, no. And, but I just, it was, it was a hard, it was hard for me and I was sad, but I, I just look at things differently now as the older I'm, I am and just through the experiences that I've been through is that the growth and the outcome I'm more focused on than the right now and the, the sadness and the trauma and the pain, it's like you have to give yourself time to mourn that. And I love mm-hmm. that going to a good therapist, she helped to guide you through that permission of mourning that. But a lot of times we can't change these things that have happened to us or that right. have happened in our lives. And so as hard as it was, I did see you in a relationship that I, I didn't see you being able to be fully expressed of who you are. And to be able to just be the Julie that I know you to be. There was a lot of toning well, it I down. Can see that now, like now that I've now it's been five years. It's been over five years, and I could being removed from that. I can see, and and neither of us, it, it wasn't good for either of us. And so um, it was just good to be removed from that for this many years away. But at the time. I was still like latched on, like I was begging and pleading, God, please let my marriage work out. And it's so funny because I was like, this is a righteous desire. Like, this is a good thing. It's best for my kids. It's best for our family if this marriage stays intact. And, you know, I I really, somebody sent me that let go and let God, which, you know, is, is so cliche. But as soon as I said, I remember specifically being on my knees and everybody's been there where your heartbreak is so severe that you literally feel like your heart 
is gonna just burst. It's in so much pain. And I my eyes were dry, but tears were coming out because I there was no water left. It was gone and I was on my knees the whole night. And I remember like at the very end of this prayer, like begging and pleading for something to be different, for something to change. And all of a sudden I just said something like, tell me what you want me to do. What am I supposed to do? And I feel like as soon as I kind of allowed myself to go through those steps, go through some grieving, go through some anger, going through all those emotions that you feel when you go through something so traumatic, and just at the end of that, you turn to God and say, tell me now what you want me to do with this. You know my situation. You've, you've, you've known me my whole life. What do you want me to do? And I feel like as soon as I kind of came to that point where I turned it all over to him, like things just started coming together. Like it was very clear to me that God had a path and God had a way. I needed to go through some emotional pain, but I was ready. And once I said that, and I really truly was willing to just do whatever he told me I was going to do, then then things started kind of shifting. And my view of how this divorce um played in my life just shifted. Uh, now I'm like, I, I I hate saying this, but it was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. Like the very worst day of my life, literally, I wanted the earth to swallow me whole. I, I didn't want to die because that meant somehow I would have to keep living. I wanted the earth to swallow me whole and cease to exist. I went from that to being like that particular moment when the divorce was inevitable and it was happening, I went from I want the earth to swallow me up to like that That was the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. I know that sounds crazy and weird, but I I love how it's turned out. Well, let's talk about that because okay. we're talking about embracing plan B. Uh-huh. And you're living, it's probably not even plan B, it's probably... Q, who knows? Yeah. X, Y, or Z, whatever it is. I invented those letters yet. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just tell us a little bit about how things evolved and how they shifted for you and your situation now. So when I got divorced, I was um, going to start teaching again. I was getting ready to do my master's program. And I felt really good about it. I was really excited. I mean, I don't know if excited is the word, but I felt, I felt good about it. And um, somebody from... My mission in London (laughs) had reached out to me and he said, are you living in Arizona? And I said, yeah, I got divorced and I've been here for a while now. And he had said, well, my my 18-year marriage had just ended. And I was like, oh my gosh, no way. And he was somebody that I was really good friends with on the mission. He was a missionary also. Tell him about the scrapbooks, the pictures. (laughs) So we had had these things in our mission called T-books. And they were like basically testimony books. And it was like a yearbook for missionaries. And um, he had written in mine and I had written in his and I did not spend that much time on people's tea books. I usually wrote like a quick little thing. It was usually something kind of funny and maybe a picture of us. And I kind of moved on. It wasn't my thing. I'm not like a scrapbooker and I don't love art. It's just I get bored and I like want to move on. And so he had given me his. I had forgotten about this completely. And he had shown me after we had started dating. He was like, you were totally in love with me. And I was like, I was not. And then I looked at his 
tea book, and there was just pages and pages of like these little hearts and little circles and little dots and flowers that I had like handwritten. And I'm like, who is this person? So obviously I had some strong affection for this elder, but he was so much, he seemed so much younger than me at the time. And, um, you know, he's blonde. He wasn't really my type. Um, you know, just lots of things about him that I, I would never have thought of him in that way while we were missionaries. But, um, yeah, but I, I adored him. I loved hanging out with him. I was always so excited when the elders would come pick us up in their car. We were on bikes. I'm still not happy about that. And they would pick us up in their car, and I was always like, oh, my gosh, it's Elder Howard. I love him. He's so funny. So he had reached out to me and said, did you, you know, did you move back to Arizona? And we started talking. And pretty quickly it got um, more flirtatious. And I felt like I needed to tell him right away, just so you know, I am never getting remarried. I am <laughs> never going to be your girlfriend. We are never kissing. We're never holding hands. It's not going to happen. He was like, well, can I come see you? And I was like, I guess, but I don't know why. Because this is never, we're never going to be in love. <laughs> and all at this time, I'd already started having dreams about like our wedding. And I wake up and I'm like, this is not happening. And I was really focused on getting my master's degree and figuring out how to take care of my family. And um, I was totally fine with this plan. And I was way, way okay with it. And, you know, my sister and my mom were like, you're going to find somebody. I'm like, I don't think you understand. I don't really want, I don't want that. I'm not doing that. I am not getting remarried. And um, I was surprised at how firm I was in that because I'm, I love people and I've always been social. I love being around others. I always have valued friendships and and having like a good social network. So I was a little surprised that I was so, you know, anti-marriage and a, a little bit of a man-hater, but not not overly so. Um, I just didn't believe in marriage and I didn't believe that kind of um, relationship in a marriage was something that was for me. And so, you know, he came out to visit me in Arizona. He wasn't living in Arizona at the time. And we went to Oregano's. So he flew in on a Wednesday. We went to Oregano's on Wednesday night. And <laughs> within like hours, we were holding hands and kissing. And I was like, I love oh, you. Oh, tough Julie. <laughs> I could totally see us getting married. This would be so awesome. <laughs> and uh, I resisted it still. So even after he left, um, I resisted this whole thing. It was really hard. I always was focusing on <laughs> Everything that would be bad about being married to him. I was telling everybody, my friends, I told you, I'm like, this is, these are the red flags. And people would say, does he have any red flags? I'm like, don't they all? I mean, everybody does, especially at this age and this stage. Yeah. I'm like, everybody's got them. And, you know, I just don't, I don't want to do that to my kids. I don't want to do it to his kids. I, I just didn't want it. And I resisted and resisted. And, you know, after being told several times, and I would pray, and I'm like, I know we're not supposed to pray for signs, but I need a sign that I'm supposed to marry him. And it would happen immediately. And I was like, it's not going to happen. It's not going to so, happen. And so, therefore, I can't marry him. Oh, that and, was quite... I remember going to the park and just having these conversations. And, <laughs> so how long did it take from that first date until you got engaged? Um, from the first date until we got engaged was a year. We broke up three different times during that time. The last one was pretty... I know three months does not even seem that long now, but, you know, when you're in love and, like, really, like, 
becoming attached to somebody, I mean, it might as well be an eternity. I just felt like a total teeny bopper. Well, I have to interject this here, though, too. Part of your resistance was your children. You're wanting them to have time to process, to heal, and you don't want to jump into anything too quickly. I think that was a I lot think of, that was my main I think that was like the main My thing. main reason was not just mine, but his, because I knew this was going to be hard for all of them. So you have four kids. And he has four. Okay. So, so a year later... You yep. finally get engaged. Yep. And now how long? So we've been married been? just over two years, almost two and a half. And um, the first six months, we both were like, wow, I don't know if we should have done this because it was really, really hard on them. Well, it was mostly about like you guys had this instant, easy connection. It was just combining the kids that seemed to it, be it, like it the source like of all the stress. It seems like every fight and still even right now, anytime we have a disagreement or something's off, Um, it's usually about the kids because there's a lot, there's so many moving parts to blending a family. It's, there's a lot of sensitive, delicate issues and there's a lot of very sensitive feelings with me and him and all the kids. And, um, we've, the first six months were really, really hard. And I, I felt like, okay, you know, they make you go to divorce school. When you get divorced, they make you... I don't think it's called that, but that's just what I called it. Divorce I'm like, oh, you got to go to divorce school. It's like traffic school, but it's divorce school. Like, the state <laughs> makes you do it. So I was like, I got to go to divorce school. And while I was there, they were like, it takes adults, um, like, three to five years to recover from divorce. It takes children five to seven years to fully recover. And I just remember thinking, that's not enough time. That's not enough time. We have to give them more time to process, to heal, and to just kind of have this be their new normal. So I was constantly thinking about making it easier for them and how we can work. We took a blended family class. We've taken two now. And um, reading lots of step parent books, blended family books, and trying to figure that out. And so being very proactive. Because from, from what I've seen, you're always trying to just crack the code. Yeah, the and then once we were like, code. oh, we got it all figured out. Oh, my gosh, I'm the greatest stepmom ever. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm the suckiest stepmom ever. <laughs> I cannot do this. Well, we kind of have those same experiences as, like, with my own children. I go through those phases where I For think sure. I'm rocking it. And then the next day, it's like, what on earth is I'm going on here? I'm yes. screwing them up in the biggest way. But ultimately, what would you say your takeaway is from where you're at now? And what advice would you, again, give someone else who's in the process of Going through divorce, blending families, like what would like what some of the advice you'd give anyone else in that situation? I I feel like that every little situation and every like area is is so specific. And if you are constantly seeking advice from a higher power, you will be led to know what you need to do next and how to handle certain things. And um I remember like one time, my my one of my stepsons has been a little more tricky because of the age that he was when we got married. He's a little more of an introvert. I think my personality was a little bit overwhelming. <laughs> I'm just loud, and I think I scared him, and he was a little bit more of an introvert. And I, um, <laughs> like, the family room turned into his own little hat and gun show room. And I remember being asleep the night before and hearing a hammer I'm like, what the heck is that? Is the neighbor just hammering in the middle of the night? Well, I went downstairs and realized it wasn't a neighbor. It was my kid. And I walked into the family room. And they were just in my family room, guys, it's right off the kitchen. It's like that's your the mom's space, you know. 
I mean, the family room is a family room, but still, you want it cozy. And I walked in, and there was like 15 to 20 huge nails in the wall on like close to the ceiling. And he just hung all of his hats, his baseball hats. And then on one side of the TV, it's like all those BB guns were like lined up. And I was staring at it and, you know, looking back, it's so hilarious to me. But at the time I was like, oh my gosh, what the heck? I don't want my family room to look like a teenage boy room. And so I walked in, it was just very slow motion. I like my eyes became huge and I was like, what is happening? And I slowly backwards walked back out of the room and up the stairs and immediately got to my knees immediately. I was like, Heavenly Father, you, you're you watching this. You're looking at these baseball hats, these nasty teenage boy. They don't shower very much, and they're kind of zitty and gross, and they're just now they're hanging on my wall. And I was so like, I, I can't even handle that this is what I'm doing. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. So um, I was saying this prayer, and I remember this um, just quote that pops into my brain um, every so often. Um, it's Jeffrey R. Holland never let a problem become more important than, or whatever. How I guess Thomas S. Monson. Thomas S. Monson. Never let a problem to be solved become more important than a person to be loved. Okay, so I didn't I didn't like that quote or that reminder, but I just kept thinking, I've, I've got to remember that. So I told my husband, I was like, hey, you know, there's a, there's a situation with the hats and there's BB guns and we have small kids. I was like, you got you to gotta get rid of them. Be gentle. Um, I, was, I was super mad just because he was just like... He didn't even ask. <laughs> I was getting so, so offended. And I remember just kept that quote kept kind of running through my mind. And um, I just, instead of getting mad and kind of losing it, like, what the heck were you thinking? Like, which, what I do all the time. I always am saying that. Like, what the crap are you thinking? Why are you doing this? And just kind of being a little bit loud and reactive, you know. And my kids know me. They, they know me. I'm loud and reactive. So a lot of times they just ignore it now. They don't even care. But him in particular, like he wasn't, he wasn't okay that I was loud and reactive. It stressed him out. So I was just really, really calm. I told my husband, um, you know, my husband said, Hey, you have 24 hours because <laughs> he needs time. <laughs> He's always that kid that you got to prep him. A lot of prep work with this kid. It can't happen right then. He's got to take a minute and it takes him a long time. So I just kind of did that. And he came up to me and was like, why aren't you letting me do it? I was like, you know what? We can do it in a different room. Let's just not do it here. And he was super mad and I was just really calm. And I remember like the next day he was, um, his sister that had just recently moved in with us was getting lots of attention because she had had a really difficult transfer, like transfer to Arizona. And it was really stressful and it was really sudden and she was having a meltdown. And my husband was paying attention to her a lot. And I was at the park and I was just kind of with the kids, just hanging out and doing doing my thing. And I saw him on his bike and I said, hey, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm just riding my bike. I go, come sit over here by me. And he did it, which I was surprised because normally when I reach out or try to be like kind of nurturing, he resists it. He came and sat next to me and I go, what's going on? And he just did this big sigh and he just went, ah. and I go, what's happening? And he like leaned in and put his head on my shoulder. First time ever. He's like kind of instigated any kind of affection. And he's like, I feel like you guys like Joey more than me. And I remember thinking 
This was such a breakthrough that he felt safe enough to do this with me. And I thought the, the very day before, if I would have flipped out like I wanted to and like freaked out about his hats and his BB guns, which, you know, looking back now is so lame, but but still very important to me to kind of keep some kind of order in the house. Yeah. But I remember thinking if I would have done that, this moment would not have happened. It It would not have happened. And... Very specific situation, very specific case. And I just feel like the more you listen and lean on what your inner voice is telling you to do, you will always be right. And I've always tell my kids, when you do right, you feel right. When you do bad, you feel bad. And that is, it doesn't matter what religion you are. Those are the, those are the eternal earthly laws that, that make the, you know, your life kind of complete. So, okay, so now fast forwarding to where you are today, that because that was in like the beginning, that was the beginning of the whole blending of the yeah. families. And um, I just feel like you've kind of found your groove a little bit. Now, that's you say that with a little asterisk because you know how it goes. Things, <laughs> yeah. you know, we have Things those ups happen. and downs and whatnot. Um, but I just, I've loved watching as you've gone through this and how it's, you've always put the person over the problem. And I think that's really important. And people can feel that. Your stepkids can feel that. Your spouse can feel that. Your children can feel that. And I think that's really an important takeaway in all of this. And as, as far as like how to help people to help you in situations like this, I think it's also important to put the person over our discomfort about whatever they're dealing with or not knowing how to deal with it. Um, there's just a couple little tips that I have for people because I think it's important to, for us to know how to help because a lot of times we don't help because maybe we don't know what to do. And I think that it's just important first to help acknowledge what someone is going through. And then really don't wait for them to ask for help to reach out. So often we just, or we give the blanket, if you need anything, let me know. Just kind of jump in and look for ways to help. And I think it's really important. I just know when I was going through so much of what I was going through is just to have someone that was like my cheerleader. So I just be their cheerleader. Encourage them. It's, it's just one day at a time. And just continue to help them know that this, is, this isn't this is it. This isn't the finality. Sometimes we're in these really hard situations. It seems like our life is never going to get better. All we can see is right now, this mm-hmm. little snapshot of what isn't working. I think it's important to help them, you know, to remind people of that when, they're, when they are in those situations. And then the lastly is just to jump in and help them, serve them. Look for ways to help, whether it's bringing them a meal, a phone call, a hug, just a kind word, helping them to babysit. Just listening, helping them to clean. They might need some financial support or just being there. And so I think it's, we all are going to be on either end of these at different points in our life, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you've been on, you've been in a place where you're supporting people now that you love that are going through something very similar. Mm-hmm. And you're able to give a lot more in a, in a very different way than you would have been able to had you not gone through this. And I think really I'm here right now today because my plan A didn't work out. I've had to really work hard and dig deep through all these really hard things that at the time just felt insurmountable. But I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. It says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? 
the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. And so I think if we can keep that perspective, whether you're in plan B, like I said, X, Y, or Z. I mean, we've all been there. I don't know who's living plan A. If you are, please let me know because you're the unicorn of the world. Yeah, you've got it all figured out. (laughs) But really, isn't it in these... I'm so grateful that I didn't that that things didn't happen the way that I thought they should. I absolutely would not have the joy that I have in my life today, have the depth, the empathy, the tools that I have if things had worked out the way that I wanted them to. And I think that's just so important to remember that. And um and just understanding too that it's in our story and 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 acknowledging that and owning that that we can support and help others. And I love how open you are with things and just understanding that what we've gone through is who we are. It doesn't make us right or wrong, good or bad. It just is what it is. And I think so often we attach expectations or meanings to certain things and just understanding that where we're at is where we're at. It just kind of is what it is, right? Mm-hmm. So what would you, what advice would you leave as we're getting ready to close here of just to how, fi- how to find joy in these, when things don't work out the way that we want them to? Um, I always try to surround myself with friends that will laugh, <laughs> <laughs> laugh at my jokes and think I'm funny. That's huge. Um, I always try to do little things like my Circle K friendships that I've made <laughs> bring me so much happiness and just finding joy in the little things like really helps. Um, we had a therapist Um, one of our blended family therapists said, always seek to connect before you correct. And I used that with my stepkids, but then I started doing that with my own kids, my husband, you know, even my ex-husband, my husband's ex-wife. Like I, I've used that in every aspect and I have noticed and, you know, and I taught for years and I I knew that was a correct principle. Like you connect with somebody and then you correct and then it's the sting is gone. And I've constantly, even through a day when I see a kid and if I'm mad at him for something or whatever that they're not doing or not doing, I first and foremost seek to connect and tell them I love them, tell them I'm happy to see them. And, And I use that with everybody now and it's it's changed the way I just kind of manage how I um, talk to people and interact with with my my kids and my husband. But it's so important. And um, that was one of my favorite things that one of our blended family counselors told us. Well, I love that too, because we know when there's a genuine connection and um, when someone really cares, you just feel that. Yeah. It doesn't even have to be spoken. Right. And I think trying to achieve that connection is the most important thing that we can do with ourselves and then with those around us. So I love that. Here's one last quote I want to end on by Maya Angelou. You may not control all events that happen, but you can decide not to be reduced by them. And so if we can just end this today with that focus of embracing where we're at, finding joy, regardless of what is or isn't working and looking for the blessings in our life because they are there. And I appreciate you tuning in today. And until next time, shine on. Thanks for listening to the Let It Glow podcast. 
If you enjoyed this show, share the love with a friend. This podcast can be found on iTunes or subscribe on my website at www.let-it-glow.com. And remember, let go and let it glow.